0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host,
1: Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. I have the privilege today of interviewing a colleague at Samford University, Professor Leonard Jack Nelson. I'll just call him Jack. Uh, Jack would be just fine. (laughs) Uh, Jack is Professor Emeritus at the Cumberland School of Law. Uh, Beeson Divinity School is a part of Sanford University, and we are blessed to work with a number of professional schools in the context of uh, the wider university, and one of which is the Cumberland School of Law. And Jack has been professor there from 1984 to 2013. He's now Professor Emeritus, still continues to teach. Uh, a person who's written and thought a lot about the interface of law and faith. And that's going to be the theme of our discussion today. So, Jack, just begin by telling us a little bit about your own background and what brought you to this kind of interest.
0: Well, I uh, grew up in Spokane, Washington, and uh, my parents weren't particularly religious, but they wanted me to have religious training, so they sent me to the Episcopal Church. And by the time I was in high school – uh, I gravitated toward the Anglo-Catholic <laughs> branch. There were two Anglo-Catholic parishes in Spokane, so uh, I became quite involved in a branch, that branch of Anglicanism. And then, about 1976, my wife and I both decided to enter the Catholic Church, and so we've been practicing Catholics since 1976.
1: If you can think back to that period in your life, Jack, what what were the factors that led to that decision. Already you you were an Anglo-Catholic so right. liturgy and sacraments the worship was important to you.
0: Yeah, I think there were a lot of things going on uh in in the church that they, they were changing the prayer book, there were uh move toward ordination of women and uh so it was a time of transition in in the Anglican church. And as you may know, some Anglican parishes are not they're quite low church. And we'd moved and we were in an area where there was no Anglo-Catholic parish. And so it was some some Sundays you'd have morning prayer, others you'd have a Eucharist, but it was kind of hit or miss. Mm-hmm. So I think more than anything else, it was my love for the Eucharist that drew me into the Catholic Church. And uh, of course, there's not a big difference between the view Anglo-Catholics have and Catholics have, but nonetheless, within the structure of the Catholic Church, I think centrality of the Eucharist was more uh, prominent, and so that's, yeah. that's that was a big part of it.
1: Now, you've spent uh, much of your life studying and writing about law and teaching law, as you've done here at Cumberland uh, for so long and so well. Uh, how has your own Christian faith uh, shaped this interest that you've had in your career in law?
0: Well, that may be another factor in my becoming Catholic. When I was uh, at Gonzaga Law School, which was a Jesuit school, uh, I took a course on jurisprudence from father Clifford Castle who 's sort of a legendary mm-hmm. Jesuit, and we focused in that course not exclusively on Thomas Aquinas but on the approach Thomas Aquinas takes uh, in his treatise on natural law and uh, our treatise on law. So I became quite interested in in natural law and uh, using that as a tool to critique or analyze uh, Current legal issues.
1: What is natural law?
0: Uh, natural law, as uh, I guess Aquinas would say, is the, the is the, our participation in the eternal law through the use of reason. So we we have human being. We as human beings uh, have this uh, rational nature, and so we are able to discover uh, laws that are eternal laws that govern us and pertain to us as human beings. And so the view is that that's how we should attempt to structure society is based on those principles.
1: Can you believe in natural law without believing in God? You
0: could. That is entirely possible. I have known people who have some concept of natural law. It's not the Catholic natural law approach, but yes, you can You can believe that there are some higher laws or absolute rules or laws that govern human beings. Just as you might look at a dog and the nature of a dog and how dogs behave, you'd say, well, that's – yes, that's actually in accordance with a pattern that there is – there are some principles here that govern how dogs behave. And yeah. same with human beings. The difference is, is we use our reason to get at it and discover it.
1: I remember some years ago when uh, Judge Bork was being uh, uh, I guess I want to say tried by the yes. Senate <laughs> being Bork <laughs> <laughs> being Bork some years ago uh, in a confirmation hearing right. uh, this question of natural law came up mm-hmm. and uh, you know he Said much as you did, I think you know, gave an explanation for it and why it has validity, and mm-hmm. uh, and yet it was kind of dismissed almost out of hand by a number of the critics, especially. And I'm wondering, any more in our society, if natural law has any valence, it does it have any any appeal beyond sort of the Bible says? It,
0: I think, of course, the idea of natural law wouldn't necessarily be tied to. A particular religious tradition. You can say, "Well, natural law." Hindus could <laughs> sure. discover natural law. Muslims, Buddhists and
1: Jews, of course, right?
0: And you see the—I uh, think it's in the uh, part of one of C.S. Lewis's books where he he goes through and lays out the kind of right. common moral principles that virtually yeah. all major religions adhere to. Right. Uh, so is it, it it does it have as much persuasive power in this current culture no i don't think so uh, increasingly we live in a very secular culture and and frankly the sexual revolution has has had a tremendous impact and uh, so it's hard to uh hard to get a seat at the table <laughs> for, for people uh, of faith and particularly those who uh, espouse what i might call traditional moral st- uh, standards based on a natural law theory
1: I wanted to ask you about a recent conference in which you participated you gave a paper sponsored by the Healthcare Ethics and Law Institute here at Sanford University. It's an annual conference I believe that's put on by this group and this particular conference focused on issues of conscience and how they interface with law and faith at this moment in our culture. Could you say a little bit about the conference your own paper that you gave there and this wider issue of conscience?
0: What I spoke about at the conference was the question I raised: is Is there a r- a role for religious people in healthcare as healthcare providers in the United States? And the reason I wanted to look at that is because I was watching some developments not only in the United States but in Canada that seem to be making it increasingly difficult for people of faith who have certain beliefs, uh, certain moral. Uh, standards that they adhere to, uh, to practice uh, and to, say, refuse to participate in some procedures that they may consider immoral. Increasingly uh, health care and, and health care providers are, con- are sort of being treated like a public utility. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, you have to provide whatever the services the profession thinks are appropriate uh, to anybody who comes uh, regardless of whether you have a moral objection mm-hmm. to them. And, uh, sometimes the moral objection is to the particular service itself. Sometimes it may be to the, the lifestyle or the, uh, arrangements that the patient has, particularly, uh, thinking of, uh, fertility treatments. Mm-hmm. There are doctors, and there was a case in California involved, uh, a, a practice group that refused to provide, uh, fertility services to a lesbian couple. And uh, they were held to have violated California law, hmm. uh, discrimination, law, discrimination I guess. laws. Discrimination mm-hmm. laws. Yeah, it was an anti discrimination law, and uh, so that was a decision of the California Supreme Court. Uh, now the, the people in the, the physicians in this group, uh, and I can't remember. It wasn't may not have been that clear. It may have been they just didn't want to provide it to people that were. Unmarried, of course, now, with same sex marriage, that wouldn't be changed, but I think it was more than that they wanted to have male and female couples uh, that would would be provided the treatment
1: more and more it seems to me the the Catholic Church has been kind of a bulwark on these family issues issues of sexuality uh, human flourishing uh, and yet, I'm wondering, even within the Catholic Church, you know, if this isn't becoming an issue of discussion, and uh, what, what is the direction that we're headed? Uh, we know evangelicals have been all over the map on this. Uh, some churches uh, recently in San Francisco, there was a well-known evangelical church that embraced same-sex marriage as perfectly legitimate. What's happening in the Catholic Church on this point? I
0: think the Catholic Church has been uh, influenced by the same cultural uh, shifts that, that the Protestant churches have been influenced by. It, it may be the Catholic Church uh, is is uh, somewhat more resistant because of the way it's organized. Uh, obviously, within the Church, there are prominent theologians and and bishops, and even cardinals, who would favor uh, significant revision of, of the Church's teaching on, on marriage. And so there's, of course, a synod coming up, and there's right. been pr- preparation for that. And apparently there was a report, I think it was yesterday, of a group of of Cardinals and bishops, I think they were from Switzerland uh, Germany, and France uh, that met sort of secretly. <laughs> it was a private meeting at the gregorian and and uh, to discuss uh, uh some some significant changes to mm-hmm. the traditional teachings that they favor so uh we you know we don 't know for sure <laughs> what mm-hmm. will happen obviously with this i wouldn't be surprised if there isn't some some change in the wind in the church. I think Pope Francis, while he has not uh, overturned any traditional church teaching at this point, has talked about a uh, different attitude, certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, a more loving attitude and not, uh, not being so focused on telling people what they can't do, but rather providing pastoral care for people and reaching out to them. So I don't know whether it will be um, just more of a change in pastoral practice, uh, that's what mm. I suspect. Or could could they change the norms? That's that's possible. Yeah. There are things that can change in the Catholic Church, and things that can't change. Right. And that's the, that's the question. What what can change? Yeah. Could we cha- Could the Catholic Church change its uh, approach on uh, providing communion to divorced couples? Yes, and so that's a hot issue. That's isn't a it? hot issue. At, at the and, and certainly that could that could happen. Uh, they could allow communion, and in fact it's already widely done in in practice. So that might very well change. Mm. I would not be surprised if if that happened at all. I think that's likely. Um, Recognition of same-sex marriage obviously would be a much bigger (laughs) change, Uh, but pastoral ministry to same-sex couples would not be as significant shifts, so. you know
1: the great worry it seems of Pope Francis' pontificate thus far, mm-hmm. still still fairly new as yeah, a pope, uh, is mercy. Yes, and uh, you know Cardinal Walter Casper wrote a book titled "Mercy," which the Pope commended. And uh, it, it's hard as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, mm-hmm. to be against mercy. Right. It's not, yes. <laughs> so, so we want to commend that, mm-hmm. and I think uh, use that even as a model for for all of us in our lives. And and yet, uh, there is a question of um, uh, is there is there a or god godly ordained way to live yes. our lives? And what That's does right. it mean to be a human being? Right. What does it mean to be a family anymore? A mother, a father? Uh, these get to more basic issues. And so, if if it's a question of reaching out in mercy to everybody who's broken, which is everybody, yes, everybody, <laughs> th- then we want to do that. Yeah. Um, But is there a place where we have to say, as as believers in Jesus Christ, as those who honor the Holy Scriptures and in the Catholic Church, especially the tradition of Mm -hmm. the church is very important, is there a bridge too far we cannot cross?
0: Yeah, and I think that's probably what they'll be struggling with in this this synod. Yes, things about marriage, of course, are – the Orthodox have slightly different rules than the Catholics, and so there is obviously some room, I think, within the tradition for some – greater openness to, or, or a little different approach to divorce couples.
1: I want, I want to switch our topic a little bit from the question of sexuality, same-sex marriage, to a, a different but related topic, and that is the sanctity of life. Uh, it seems to me in our culture that uh, same-sex marriage is very much up for grabs with a certain generation, and certainly as we've been discussing across denominations and in the wider culture. On the other hand, it seems to me there's been a kind of move in a good direction on the sanctity of life as more and more people realize what's at stake there. Can you say a little bit about – do you sense that's, that's an accurate assessment? And where is the pro-life movement headed these days?
0: Well, I, I've been quite involved in the pro-life movement, my, my wife even more so. And uh, I, I agree with you. I think young people more and more uh, are responding – to to the notion that this is a this is a human being here in a human life uh we're talking about abortion that that is deserving of protection and uh, so i think there may be a cultural shift toward the pro life movement among young people and and part of it is just you know we know such so much more and it's some knowledge is so much more widespread about what what that is this baby in the womb? Yeah, what, what does yeah. it look like? And what are its stages of development? Does it feel pain? I mean, that's becoming more and more right. clear that yes, <laughs> yes. You yes. right. uh, yeah, have a heartbeat from very early on, brain development, uh, uh, sensitivity to pain. And uh, so I think people more and more just logically are saying, now this is just a stage in someone's development. It's not any, you know, it's not any different. Yes, you're dependent on your mother, but you're dependent on your mother after you're born, too.
1: Exactly. What's the difference between 10 minutes before birth and 10 minutes after birth?
0: It's a totally arbitrary line. So I think that is, that's a very positive and hopeful development. And also the more, as you know, the pro-life movement has really brought together uh, uh, evangelicals and Catholics. Right. And it's that's been a, a significant factor in promoting ecumenism which you've you've been so involved in same-sex marriage is an interesting one I we the episcopal the Anglican parish that I was in in Spokane Washington in the early 70s was performing same-sex marriages okay so this is not something particularly new to me it's been around and there was a belief at that time that by that priest there that this was the future of the church. And he was right with respect to the Episcopalians. They did accept same-sex marriage, uh, at least the U.S. Uh, branch. So this this has been a cultural shift that I've been watching for 30 years. When I was a clerk at the Washington Supreme Court, we already had cases. There was already a litigation and strategy in place mm-hmm. to get recognition for same-sex marriages. Uh, there was a case that was brought and uh, that was decided that by the Court of Appeals in the state of Washington it would have been about the mid-70s, the Singer versus Hera case. And the, and the argument there was that the prohibition on same-sex marriages violated the Equal Rights Amendment. There was mm-hmm. sex discrimination. Now, the Court of Appeals held that it did not. <laughs> they said, well, you're treating both sexes the same. You just won't let them marry each other. And the, our Supreme Court uh, refused uh, – review. So they didn't actually review it. But that was how that was my first exposure. to yeah, That was that, in the seventies. That was in about nineteen seventy-five. Yeah. So this has been around for a long time. It's been this brewing. Been brewing for mm-hmm. a long time. Absolutely. Yeah. And there was a sociologist that I knew I pointed with at the University of Washington, who I don't agree with her much, but I think she's got uh, her name's Pepper Schwartz. But her insight, I think, is valid. She said, "What happened in the culture is we people generally redefined marriage." as self fulfillment right where the traditional view of marriage was it was ordered toward procreation creating a biologically related family and also moral support those were the two bases uh, basic uh, uh, foundations for marriage but once you shift to self fulfillment then that's a very different sort of animal right yes and uh, and so then the argument is well heck this is a way of self fulfillment how can you deny this to gay people sure. right
1: and of course it raises the question of polyamory it and does. you know why three four five six right. isn't isn't that possible
0: I, I don't think it's I don't think you can once you focus on self fulfillment uh, that's a very subjective sort of thing so it's hard to impose objective moral yeah. standards on yeah.
1: that now th- this podcast is going to be posted we think about a week before the Supreme Court. Uh, decision okay. on same-sex marriage. So as we're talking right mm-hmm. now and as people are listening right mm-hmm. now probably, we don't know how the Supreme Court right. is going to come down on this issue. We know it's, it's going to be an important decision. Could you say a little bit about uh, the alternative possibilities and, and maybe uh, if you can have a word of wisdom for Christians how we should think about it and respond to this?
0: Well, the, the, the case Obergefell versus Hodges is actually – there are four cases there. But the two issues that uh, the court granted cert on was first whether the 14th Amendment required states to provide marriage licenses to same-sex couples, okay? So that's the 14th Amendment Equal Protection protection. Clause. The second issue was whether the 14th Amendment required states to give full faith and credit to same-sex marriages entered into in other states. So even if the state doesn't itself allow same-sex marriages, does the Fourteenth Amendment require it to recognize those marriages? So those are the two issues. I the arguments were fascinating. Uh, if you ever have a chance to to you can you can hear them. You mm-hmm. <laughs> can't watch them, but you can hear them. Right. Um, uh, so it, it, there, there are some fascinating exchanges on there. And of course everybody's guessing as to how it will turn out. My guess is uh I think you've got the four Liberals on the court, right? And they're going to vote for recognizing same-sex marriage as a constitutional right. That would be my guess. And then the question for me is what does Justice Kennedy do?
1: <laughs> yes, the swing vote. <laughs> the swing vote.
0: And I think he's leaning that way, frankly, mm-hmm. just based on his history on the court and and right. some of the questioning that went on. So if I had to guess right now, I'd say 5-4 yeah. and it will become a constitutional right. Uh, yeah. That would be my guess. How does that affect Christians? Well, it could have pretty significant impact on Christians. We know already uh, in states where same-sex marriage has been recognized, there have been cases of uh, people providing wedding services, uh, florists, uh, bakers, and things like that who have said that, well, we don't want to provide those services to same-sex partners. We we don't believe in same-sex marriage, and so we don't want to be a part of it. And they have been... Uh, Uh, fined under state laws. Mm -hmm. So that may just be the beginning of it, I I assume. And um, so a number of states do have uh, state laws that prohibit uh, sexual orientation discrimination. Mm -hmm. And so that could be possibly used to to fine, to prosecute people who refuse to provide services. Uh, Would it go so far as to fine ministers that refuse to perform ceremonies? I doubt it. I think the First Amendment would Protect and provide protection there. Could it could it apply to churches that rent out their halls for weddings? Would they be required to, to allow same-sex couples to have their reception there? Perhaps. It may go that far. So that's, uh, you know, that's what we're going to be having to deal with here over the next few years is how does this affect churches? How does it affect individual religious people who may not want to Participate in in uh, same sex ceremonies, and there's really a first first amendment free speech issue here too. Exactly. You know, if you yeah. go and I always tell people about the, uh, uh, Shoprite store up in in uh, the Northeast, uh, a few years ago I, there was a fellow who decided to name all his kids after prominent Nazis, and so his little boy was named Adolf Hitler, and I don't recall the last name. So he went to the Shoprite store, and they said uh, he said I want to. I want a, a cake with swastikas on it that says, Happy Birthday, Adolf Hitler. And they say, oh, no, we're not going to bake that cake. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. I don't think anybody would say should a ba- that a baker ought to be required to participate in something like that, bake something, and, and in effect uh, be associated with that particular ideology. And I would think it would be the same for religious people. If you go to a baker and say, uh, I, you know, we're we're getting married, and I want Bob and Steve forever. Gay marriage is great, uh, written on the cake. Uh, if you force a baker to do that, that seems to me not only a a violation of the First Amendment uh, free exercise, but also First Amendment free speech yeah. protections. So there's some interesting yeah. issues there.
1: A few years ago, not uh, 2009 actually, six years ago, I was involved with uh, my friend uh, Professor Robert George of Princeton and the late uh, Chuck Colson in drafting a document called the Manhattan Declaration, which dealt with three we considered uh, pressing moral issues of our time. The sanctity of life for every human being from conception to natural death, the dignity of marriage as God intended it to be between one man and one woman, a lifelong covenantal and conjugal union and religious liberty. And these three are, as we see in our discussion today, indicates this so closely interlinked. They are,
0: very much so. And
1: I wonder, we're just about out of time, if you would make a few comments, Jack, just about religious freedom itself. And we referred briefly to conscience protections. That's one... uh, a, a one aspect of religious freedom. Uh, where where are we as a country, so committed as we are to religious freedom in in our charter documents? How how do these debates we've talked about, particularly marriage, sanctity of life, impact questions of religious freedom? Well,
0: that's that's uh, going to be an ongoing uh, issue and struggle that the courts will have to, devo- uh, to deal with. Uh, there is a bit of a problem though. A few years ago, there was a case uh, named Employment Division. Versus Smith, and the uh, old Brennan ACLU approach to uh, free exercise was that if uh, a state law or federal law infringed on religious liberty in any way, the state had a pretty heavy burden to justify it. They had to show that uh, there was a compelling state interest, and this was the uh, least restrictive alternative. Uh, that was changed, actually, oddly enough, by an opinion written by Justice Scalia, Appointment Division versus Smith, that came out of Oregon and involved a fellow who had been fired from his job as a drug counselor uh, for using peyote, and he was a member of the Native American Church. And so the court then got rid of the old test. They said, "Well, we're not going to use that test anymore in determining whether." Uh, state laws infringe the First Amendment. And the new test is, if it's a general law of, of neutral applicability, uh, then it's good. And uh, you don't have to make this strong showing in order to justify the law. So that, that's the precedent we're, we're stuck with. Now Congress reacted to that by passing the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which reinstituted the old, the old test. And uh, later that law was – applied to both the federal and state governments. Later that law was declared unconstitutional as applied to state governments, still in place to, as to the federal government. Uh, so some states now have passed RFRA laws. That was the recent dust-up in, in Indiana. Indiana.
1: Yeah, and in Arkansas too. Uh,
0: so we've we're gone from a place where in 93, Bill Clinton willingly signed this federal law, uh, heavy support both sides of the aisle. Democrats as well as Republicans, where now religious freedom is no longer—it's—it's uh, it's controversial.
1: Yes, <laughs> right. It, so it's, it was a unifying theme in our culture in our country uh, until just a very few years ago, and now it seems up for grabs. Now all there's over again.
0: polarization over it, and and there's a genuine, a significant uh, group of people who would like to see religious freedom curtailed. Yeah, <laughs> pretty significantly.
1: Well, one of the great sayings, I guess, uh, on this topic is that the price of religious freedom is eternal vigilance, and our conversation today has underscored the importance of vigilance, I think, on the part of uh, people of faith, uh, certainly Christian believers. Uh, Thank you, Jack, for this conversation and, and for your good work for so many years on these very important cultural and legal issues Uh, My colleague, uh, Dr. Leonard Jack Nelson III, uh, has Professor Emeritus at the Cumberland School of Law here at Sanford University. He is the author of Diagnosis Critical, The Urgent Threats Confronting Catholic Health Care, and many other important works of law and faith. Uh, Thank you for your collegiality and for your conversation today. I've enjoyed being with you. Thank you.